Well, hey, my name is Josh. I am the spiritual formation pastor here at Radiant Life Church. Glad you could be with us as we do another installment of our series, Awaken. This is a series where it's, this is long-term. Again, they talked about that last week. Uh, we're just journeying through the book of Acts. And we're going to pick up today right where Pastor Ryan and Pastor Brandon left off last week. They started Acts chapter 3. And, and in that narrative, we see Peter and John, two of Jesus' disciples, go to the temple for afternoon prayer. And there's a, there's a gentleman there who is unable to walk. He's been lame since birth. And, and as Peter and John approach, he says, hey, 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 maybe I'm going to get some money from these guys. And they said, hey, I don't have money. What I do have, I'm going to give you. And, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, this guy who hadn't been able to walk was healed. And he starts to, to jump up and down. He's praising God. He's super excited. We're going to jump in to the narrative right after that. So if you have your Bible, if you have your tablet, if you have your phone, whatever you use to engage with God's word, I want to encourage you to go to Acts chapter 3. We're going to start uh, in verse 11, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. The title of today's message is The Purpose of the Signs. The Purpose of the Signs. Uh, if you've got, uh, if you've been in church a while, maybe you've, you've done sword drills, right? So if you've, if you've got in your Bible, your phone, your device, if you're to Acts chapter three, go ahead and just hold it up in the air so I can kind of know where, where people at. All right, we got people are starting to get there. Rock and roll. We will, we will get started. So we read in Acts chapter three, starting in verse 11. It says they, right? So these are all the people that are there in the temple courts for afternoon prayer. Again, Ryan showed us that really cool, uh, the, computer rendering last week where you have this, this thing called Solomon's Porch or Solomon's Colonnade. Right? So they're all in this area. It says they all rushed out in amazement to Solomon's Colonnade where the man was holding tightly to Peter and John, the man that they had uh, just healed. Peter saw his opportunity. Pause. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16, it says, make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Peter saw his opportunity, and he proceeds to take it. And that's what we're going to talk about here today, what, he, what that looks like for him. But the question is, how many times do we have opportunities? Holy Spirit hands us an opportunity to impact somebody for the kingdom. Do we take the opportunity? Peter saw his opportunity and addressed the crowd. People of Israel, he said, what is so surprising about this? And why stare at us? as though we had made this man walk by our own power or godliness. For it is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of all our ancestors who has brought glory to his servant Jesus by doing this. This is the same Jesus whom you handed over and rejected before Pilate, despite Pilate's decision to release him. You rejected this holy, righteous one and instead demanded the release of a murderer. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of this fact. Through faith in the name of Jesus, this man was healed, and you know how crippled he was before. Faith in Jesus' name has healed him before your very eyes. Friends, I realize that what you and your leaders did to Jesus was done in ignorance, But God was fulfilling what all the prophets had foretold about the Messiah, that he must suffer these things. Now repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. 
Then times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord, and he will again send you Jesus, your appointed Messiah. For he must remain in heaven until the time for the final restoration of all things, as God promised long ago through his holy prophets. Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. Listen carefully to everything he tells you. Then Moses said, anyone who will not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from God's people. Starting with Samuel, every prophet spoke about what is happening today. You are the children of those prophets, and you are included in the covenant God promised to your ancestors. For God said to Abraham, through your descendants, all the families on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant Jesus, he sent him first to you people of Israel to bless you by turning each of you back from your sinful ways. Peter sees his opportunity, and after the healing of this man, he starts to preach. And he, he walks through some, some important pieces of Israel's history, and he brings to their attention some figures that they would have held in very high regard. He says, yeah, don't you guys remember? Like, why are you so surprised that this is happening? Do you remember what Abraham was promised? Do you remember what Moses said? Do you remember what Samuel said and all of the other prophets? He said, everything that we have in scripture, right? We call it the Old Testament, right? For, for Jewish people, that was the entirety of their scripture. He says, all of that pointed to Jesus, why are you guys surprised that, that this is happening? You shouldn't be. The Old Testament was a sign that pointed to Jesus. Then Peter throws something in that conversation, right? He says, he says you guys, you killed the author of life. But he came back and he says, we bear witness to this fact. So not only... Do we have all of the scripture that is pointing forward to this time when the Messiah will come? Peter says, Jesus embodied everything that God had promised. The Old Testament was a sign pointing forward. Jesus showed up and there were all kinds of signs that he was the one they were waiting for. He says, Jesus embodied all of this. Now, if you were with us at Christmas, we did our series, Christmas Through Their Eyes. And in one of the teachings in that series, we talked about Christmas Through the Eyes of Simeon. Simeon was a priest, and he was actually at the temple when Jesus was brought by Mary and Joseph to be circumcised. And in that, in that message, we looked at some of the Old Testament passages that looked ahead to the Messiah. And we also kind of highlighted the Newer Testament passages that show how Jesus fulfilled those. So if you want to grab your phone and just snag a picture, we're not going to go through all these because, again, we already did that message. You can go back and listen to it online. Uh, it's in the Christmas Through Their Eyes series. Realize you need to just write these down real quick or take a picture if you want to just look at these at your leisure. But there are multiple places, right? And this is just a teeny tiny little sampling of places in the Old Testament where it pointed forward to the Messiah and then how we see Jesus actually fulfill that or embody those things. And then we also have John, who was a disciple of Jesus. He closes out his account 
of the life and ministry of Jesus by saying this. The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. Again, John is he's closing out his writing about the life and all the miraculous things Jesus did. Many other ones. He said, but these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. So John is saying, man, all this stuff, all of this was a sign of who Jesus was. Right? So we, they had the Old Testament. We have the Old Testament. Now, what we call our New Testament, particularly the Gospels, the life of Jesus and kind of his ministry, right? They didn't call that the New Testament. John didn't call that the New Testament. Peter didn't stand there in the temple courts and say, yeah, if y'all would read your New Testament. No, because they were the New Testament. Like they were, they were living these things. Peter said, for the last three and a half years, we've seen all of these happen. We've seen all of these things come to fruition, the things we've been waiting for. He says, Jesus, he's the guy. But in that, in that preaching, he also points forward yet again. In verse 21, he says, for he, Jesus, must remain in heaven until the time for the final restoration of all things, as God promised long ago through his holy prophets. The Old Testament pointing forward to Jesus. Jesus shows up, embodies all of it. But we see in scripture, both here and what Peter says, but in multiple other places as well, Jesus is coming again. He will come back again and everything will be made whole. Everything will be made right. He says, but he, he's waiting. He's waiting. And elsewhere in scripture, we see he's waiting. And that is for our benefit. Right there, some of us are like, come on, Lord, hurry it up. Let's go. If you could show up tomorrow, that would be great. Scripture says that God is waiting. He is patient. He wants people to come into a relationship with him. So he waits that it is his grace. And he's waiting. But in the meantime, in the meantime, it's important for us to recognize that we are signs. The way that we live out our faith should point people to Jesus. In this, in this waiting period, Jesus came once, he's coming again. But until that time, we should live lives that point people to him. He is patiently waiting so that many will come into a relationship with him. And we have the ability to be part of that process, to point people to Jesus. This morning, I want to talk about three ways that scripture gives us that we can be a sign pointing back to Jesus. The first sign is this, unity. Everybody say unity. Unity is a sign. In John chapter 17, Jesus is, is praying. He's praying over his disciples and he prays by extension for, for you and I. If you're in the room today and you're a follower of Jesus, uh, Jesus has prayed for you. How cool is that? We're gonna jump into John chapter 17 says this, starting in verse 20. I'm praying not only for these disciples, right? The guys that have been hanging out with them, doing life with them, doing ministry with them. Not only for those disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. And so that's you and I, if you're a follower of Jesus. I pray that they will all be, how many? Just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. 
And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I've given them the glory you gave me. So they may be how many? As we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. First of all, how awesome awesome is that? That God, our Father, loves us as much as he loves Jesus. How cool is that? But he says, Lord, I want to pray that they experience such perfect unity. And when we get that right, when we live into that, and we have unity, he says, people will believe that you sent me, Jesus. Unity is a sign. And I think Jesus prayed for this because our natural bent is not to be united. Our natural bent is division. Think about it. And maybe you're not. Maybe you're not a divisive person until I bring up, I don't know, sports. If I were to say here from this stage and in the presence of everybody who's joining us online, can anything good come out of South Bend? (laughs) I have just created division between my brother JB and myself. But it's all right. I, don't, I actually don't follow sports at all. I don't care who wins. I just like messing with y'all. y'all sport. <laughs> but we see division, even sports. Now, I'm sure none of you are those sports fans. <laughs> and you've never said anything unchristlike about the member of a, a rival team or about rivalry fans. I'm sure none of you have ever done any of those things. I actually, so a little interesting, interesting side note. I was reading an article this past week. This was, this was about 10 years ago, I think 2012. There was a soccer game in Egypt, very heated rivalry. And I can't, the, the names are in Arabic. I don't remember how to pronounce them, but one of the teams smuggled in weapons Things got way out of hand. I mean, there were stampedes. When it was all said and done, 70-some people were killed at a soccer game. I'm sure none of y'all are that kind of sports fan. But we divide over things. We divide so easily, right? You read social media posts, and you'll see the division, it runs rampant. Right, if you've got if you've got a new baby, right, everyone's got a, an opinion. Right, do you breastfeed? Do you bottle feed? And some of you right now, you just well, of course you, you, you just went there. You just went there. Do you vaccinate your kids? Do you not vaccinate your kids? Start some fights up in here today. We divide over politics. Well, you, you couldn't be a follower of Jesus and vote for that person. You can't be a Christian and, and support this party. We divide so quickly. And there are really important things that we divide over. Like, which Mexican restaurant in Sturgis has the best food? 
I have the microphone, so I'm going to tell you it's El Sambrador. <laughs> right up by Little Caesars. If you've not had their gorditas, you should. No, put your microphone away, Brandon Kinsey. You put your microphone away. Man, so far I'm going to fight with JB and I'm going to fight with Brandon. Where's it going to go? Where's it going to go? We divide so quickly. And Jesus knew that. So he says, Lord, I want my followers to be united. And don't just let this pass you by. Because I think, I think when we don't do that, I think it grieves the heart of Jesus. I have, I have kids. I don't know how many people in there. You've got, you've got more than one kid. Right? More than one kid. Have you ever had it where you as a parent sit there and you, and you listen to your, your kids and they're fighting about something that is stupid? <laughs> and they're just, they're picking at each other. They're bickering. They're, just, they're going at it and you're like, this thing that you're bickering about, it doesn't even matter. And as a parent, like you, you, you want your kids to, to get along. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm going to assume you do, right? Like, man, I want my kids to get along. And it's frustrating and it's heartbreaking when I see my kids like button heads about something that doesn't even matter. I think that's God with us. He's like, man, you guys are, you guys are dividing over things that don't even matter. He says, the things that you choose to split over. Now, hear me. I'm not, this is not addressing, like there are times where churches split because you've got people like, no, hey, this thing that is sinful, nah, we're cool with that. I'm not talking about that. But is it really worth dividing because you think the rapture is going to happen at this time and you think the rapture is going to happen at that? No. Unfortunately, in the history of the church, we've seen a lot more division than we have unity. Jesus calls us to unity. This singular focus on the purpose and person of Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul uses this uh, idea of the body. Right? He, he, he gives us this picture of the body and he does in 1 Corinthians 2. I'm going to read this one. It says, the human body has many parts, but the many parts make up how many whole bodies? One whole body. So it is with the body of Christ, which is us, the church. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, and some are free. But we have all been baptized into how many bodies? By how many spirits? And we all share the same spirit. And then in Ephesians 4, Paul talks about how Christ is the head, right? We are to be the body, and we do everything at the direction and discretion of Jesus, who is our head. Unity is this singular focus on the person and purpose of Jesus. It doesn't matter what we might like. It doesn't matter what we want or what our preference is or how we think the world should operate. It's setting all of those things aside. If they conflict with the way of Jesus 
and we hang on to those things and we divide over those things, we're missing it. We're missing it. And we cripple our ability to point people to Jesus when we attempt a unity based on anything other than him. When you try to rally around some other thing than Jesus or elevate any other thing and say, no, this is what we need to all be together on. If it isn't Jesus, we're crippling our ability to point people to him. Unity is a sign. The next one is this, deeds. Deeds are a sign. Everybody say deeds. Deeds. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is speaking, and he says, You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see, so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. He says, the way you live your life, the way you choose to leverage your time, your talent, and your treasure, those have the potential to point people to Jesus. If we use them in such a way, people will praise our heavenly Father. Our faith should be proved by the way that we live our life. James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, he comes down, he comes down a little bit hard on this. I think and maybe this is challenging. He says this in James chapter 2. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Implication, no. Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, goodbye, have a good day, stay warm and eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? Implication, none. So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. If our faith doesn't have any proof, if our faith doesn't produce any real world fruit, our faith is dead and useless. Where you live, work, and play should be better places because you are in them living out your faith. Does your home as a follower of Jesus look any different than the home of a militant atheist? I kind of hope so. Which I'm not, if you're here and you're a militant atheist, we love you. Again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm just saying we, like, you don't have any real reason to do things differently. We do, like Jesus calls us to a, a pretty high standard. Does your place of work look any different because you are in it living out your faith? The way you interact with your boss, the way you interact with your coworkers, 
The way you approach it, do you go in every day? When scripture says, Paul writes in Colossians, right, that even, even to slaves, he says, do your work as if you were doing it for God, not man. Do you do your job as if Jesus himself said, hey, you know what, I need you to go put that RV together. Do we live our lives in that way? Do we treat people in accordance with the way that Jesus calls us to? The way you leverage your time, your talent, your treasure. It could build the kingdom of Jesus or it could build the kingdom of me. Which kingdom are we building? Love is a sign. Love is a sign. Now, this one is... is Fun because our culture, not our, I think not just our culture, right? This isn't just like dogging on our culture, right? But, but, but we have a different understanding of love, right? We think, we think romance. We think, woo, we think, we think Twitter pated from Bambi, right? Remember in Bambi, everyone gets Twitter pated, right? That's what we think love is a lot of the times. And when you think that's love, that will affect the way you live your life. If, if all love is to you is your hormones going bonkers, right? And, the, and this feeling of, oh, it's, oh, he just texted me. Oh. <laughs> if that's all love is to you, is it any surprise we have as many broken relationships? Well, you know what? I just, I fell out of love. Your hormones stopped dancing and, and you didn't get as excited about a text message? Well, if that's all love was to you, you're in for a, a world of hurt, a world of disappointment, because guess what? That goes away. I, they, there's science behind that. You got like two years of like, oh, and then it's probably going away. <laughs> what? <laughs> Why are they laughing at me, Josh? Whoa. There we go. But if we so choose, what comes next can be way better. I would rather that when my, when my wife, Nicole, right? Nicole waved to everybody, say hello. When Nicole says to me, Josh, I love you. I'm glad that that doesn't just mean she got giddy because I texted her. Or that she just thinks I'm so cute with this Britney Spears microphone. So cute. I mean, she does think I'm cute with this Britney, you know, but whatever. I'm glad that what she means when she says, Josh, I love you, she's saying, I am choosing to engage with you in what Jesus calls us to. I am choosing to love you. And we're going to dig in a little bit to what love actually looks like. Because again, man, I just, I think we get this, we get this wrong. Right? Love is, love is hard to do if we want to do it the way that Jesus calls us to. In John chapter 13, Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples shortly before he goes to be crucified. And he tells them this. So now I'm giving you a new What? Not suggestion, 
Not a, eh, if you guys feel like it. If you have time, squeeze this in. I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. How? Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Not how many Bible verses you've memorized. Not how well you know doctrine. Not how long you've been coming to church. Not whether or not you've been through the next steps experience. Can't see, I was, I was waiting for something on that one. I tossed you that softball. How will they know that you're a disciple of Jesus? And hey, don't get, is it important to be in scripture? Yes. Is it important to put that inside you? Yes. Is it good to go to the next steps experience? Yes. Dude. I can't. He's still mad about the Mexican restaurant thing, I think, is, is what it is. <laughs> you want to prove to the world that you were a disciple of Jesus. The proof is the way you love one another. And now, I do want to, you know, just in case you're like, okay, well, yes, that, that's great. I can, I can love one another. Right? A lot of this one another language that we have in Scripture, this is insider-focused. Same thing with James. When James is talking about, hey, if you see a brother or sister, this is insider-focused. This is referring to other believers. Jesus is saying, if you love one another, fellow believers, right, which goes back to the whole unity thing, if you love one another well, you'll prove to the world that you are my disciples. And maybe you're like, oh, hey, that's cool. I can, I, can, I can love other believers. We've got some common ground. But just in case you're like looking for an escape, Jesus doesn't give us any. Because elsewhere, right, when we read about the Good Samaritan, Jesus tells us to love our neighbor. And in the context of that story, that was somebody who was not at all like you. That's somebody who was very different, other side of the tracks kind of person. So you have to love the people that are like you. You have to love the people that aren't anything like you. Jesus also said you have to love your enemies, so these are people that don't like you. You have to love them too. So there's, there's not a, a, I don't think there's a single person on earth that you get a pass on loving. Now, I will, I will throw out there just because this, this stumped me a few years ago. One of my children, I'm pretty sure they were sitting on the toilet and had this deep theological thought and they asked me this question as I walked past they said to me, Dad, I said, yes. I said, Jesus says we're supposed to love our enemies, right? I said, yes, that's right. I said, Dad, Satan is our enemy, right? Right. Are we supposed to love Satan? <laughs> to which I very wisely responded, uh... <laughs> No, <laughs> no, I'm gonna, uh, no, I'm going to go with no. <laughs> but human beings, you don't get a pass on anybody. You're supposed to love them. John wrote this in his later letter to the churches. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. God is spirit. 
You can't physically see him. But John says, if we, if we get this right, if we love one another right, the love of God is brought to full expression. There is this tangible expression of the love of God here on earth. That points people to Jesus. Well, what does love look like? Well, you've, you've probably been to a wedding where you've heard a passage recited from 1 Corinthians 13, even though Paul didn't really write, that had nothing to do with weddings when he wrote it. But it's a good passage. It's a challenging passage because he gives us some of the characteristics of what love looks like. What type of love we are called to. Not this, oh, well, you know what? I just, I fell out of love, so I guess we're done. It isn't that kind of love at all. Paul says, love is patient and kind. It's not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It doesn't demand its own way. It's not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. It doesn't rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. It never gives up. It never loses faith. It's always hopeful. And it endures through every circumstance. That is hard. So when my wife says, Josh, I love you, or I say, Nicole, I love you, we are saying, this, this is what I want to live out to you. Do I always get it right? No. Does she always get it right? Most of the time, but not always. It is this sacrificial love. Jesus says, just as I've loved you, what did Jesus do shortly after that? He went and gave up his life for his disciples. He went and gave up his life for you and me. It is a sacrificial love. When we love people like that, we point them to Jesus. Maybe you say, man, this is, this is really hard. Unity, that's hard. Because our, our, our nature is, is bent towards division. Leveraging the things that I do, the way that I use my time, my talent, my treasure, like that's hard. Because we're really good at self-promotion. But scripture calls us, he says, hey, this isn't about promoting yourself. Keep reading in Matthew, in Matthew chapter six. And he goes after the religious leaders because they leveraged all these things to self-promote. Jesus says, that isn't it. He says, you need to leverage these things to point people to God. It's that, it's that motivation. Why am I really doing this? That's hard. Loving people like this is hard. These signs are only possible through the power and the working of Holy Spirit within us. In the flesh, we can't love people well. In the flesh, we're going to be drawn towards self-promotion. In the flesh, we're divisive. But if we walk in the Spirit, if we are filled with the Spirit, if we surrender our will, our agenda, our preferences to Holy Spirit and let Him lead, go back to that singular focus on the person and purpose of Jesus. If that is our focal point, 
Holy Spirit will guide us in that direction. It requires us to say, Holy Spirit, what do you want me to do here? What do you want me to do with this? The Old Testament pointed to Jesus. Jesus showed up and embodied everything that God had promised. And before Jesus comes back again, we have the potential to point people to Jesus. But it's not going to happen on accident. It requires willful surrender to the will of Jesus. So as we talk about just these three signs, and there are more, you can dig into scripture, right? This is not an exhaustive list. But my question this morning is this. If you are on trial for being a disciple of Jesus, would there be enough evidence or signs to convict you? What is the proof of your faith? If we lived in a country where following Jesus was illegal, where followers of Jesus were persecuted and they dragged you in front of a judge and said, man, this, this guy, this lady, they follow Jesus. And the judge says, prove it. What evidence would they bring to that judge to put you away? Faith without action is dead and useless. Unity out of anything else you could have prayed for was most important to Jesus because that's what he prayed for. Loving one another well is what Jesus challenged his disciples to do. Do we do those things? As the, Holy, as, uh, as the worship team comes up, I want to just ask this question as we've asked many weeks. What is Holy Spirit saying to you? Do you pursue unity or do you promote division? Do you leverage your time, talent, and treasure to expand the kingdom of Jesus or your own kingdom? Do you love people in the way that Jesus calls us to love people? What's Holy Spirit saying to you in this moment? Father in heaven. Lord, we want to be people who point others to you. Lord, we can't do it on our own. We can't muster everything within us and, and just love people better. We can't just... We just all of a sudden decide we want to pursue unity. Lord, we need Holy Spirit working in us to do those things. Lord, I pray for everyone in the room here. I pray for everyone joining us online. Lord, that 
that they would just take a posture of surrender to Holy Spirit. Say, Holy Spirit, which way do you want me to go? Lord, we know Holy Spirit's role is to point people back to you. And as he works in us, as Holy Spirit produces fruit, as Holy Spirit produces actions, as Holy Spirit enables us to love people like you do, it will point people to you. Thank you for Holy Spirit's working in our lives. Lord, may we leave this place and wherever we are, wherever we live, work, and play, may we be people who are a sign pointing to you. And we pray this in your name. Amen.